And so, Father God, we receive your love today, and we thank you that you love us not because of our performance, not because of the amount of money that we give, not because, Lord God, the fact that um, we don't do certain things or we do certain things, but your love is a performance-free love, that you love us based on your Son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross. Someone needs to know that today, that they are loved, period. So we receive your love. We cannot achieve your love. We receive your love in this place today. Now unleash the power of your word. May it fall on good ground. May it take root. May it produce great fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your devices, I want to encourage you to take them out, click on your Bible apps, and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. You'll forgive me, I'm old school. I'm turning dead trees right now. But uh, for some of you, you hip people, just click on your apps. Again, not your Pokemon Go apps, but just click on your Bible apps and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you're making your way there, just want to um, call your attention to the fact that uh, this week, due to some um, uh, changes just for this week, uh, we won't be having the video. Um, uh, the personnel was not available to run it this week, so don't freak out. We will have the audio of the message and the next week we will be right back uh, back on track. Well, I'm excited to share this word with you. Um, I am reminded as a preacher there is power in the word. There's not power in me. There is power in the word. So I don't share with you um, uh, my insights, my outline. Um, I share with you what the timeless eternal God says to us, and we leave the results up to God. Amen. First Peter chapter 2. Pick me up in verse 9. We're just going to look at four verses. If you're new with us, we started a series four weeks ago. This is installment number five that we're just going to go verse by verse through the book of First Peter. We're calling it Exiles, Passing Through Without Passing By. And we've made the observation that uh, we are spiritual immigrants that our citizenship is in heaven. In fact, one brother told me today he freaked somebody out at Starbucks because they asked him where he was from. He says, I'm an immigrant <laughs> from heaven. <laughs> uh, that was a Kodak moment, as they say back in the day. But you know, that's true. This, that's true. This world is not our home. And we've been unpacking what that means. Verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners, and here's that word again, exiles, immigrants, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. The idea of Gentiles here in this text is those who don't know Jesus, honorable, 
so that when they speak against you, not if they speak against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see, not just hear your good words, see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Story is told of a of a group of eagles that were soaring high in the sky one day. And one of these eagles looked down on the ground and saw a peculiar sight. He saw an eagle hanging out with a flock of turkeys. Walking like the turkeys, doing its neck like the turkeys, strutting like the turkeys. And from this one eagle up in the sky's view, it looked like this eagle with the turkey thought it was a turkey. So the eagle up in the sky called the, the attention of this peculiar eagle down on the ground to some of his other fellow eagles that he was flying with and said, let's take a closer look. And sure enough, they circled and landed. And not only did they notice that this eagle was walking like turkeys and strutting like turkeys and doing its neck like turkeys, but he also noticed that this eagle was actually trying to gobble like turkeys. Finally, the eagles that had just landed couldn't, couldn't hold their peace. They said to this, this peculiar eagle, they said, hey man, what's up with that? Why are, you, why are you down on the ground with the turkeys? How come you're not soaring in the sky with us? Why are you trying to be something that God has not created you to be? The eagle looked back at the other eagles and said, from the time I can remember, from the time I was a little eaglet, I, I was hanging out with these turkeys. I didn't know I could do what you guys did. I've never tried to fly in my life. I've just been on the ground here with these turkeys. The other eagle said, are you kidding me? You can soar in the sky with us. The other eagle said, really? The other eagle said, absolutely, just watch us. And these eagles took off running and jumped with all of their might and flapped their wings. And they were about a thousand feet in the sky. And the eagle on the ground was... His his breath was just captivated as these other eagles circled back down and they said to him, your turn. And sure enough, this eagle took off running down the, the ground there and jumped with all of its might and, and kind of flapped its wings. And the next thing you know, it's soaring high in the sky, about a thousand feet in the air. Finally, it landed back down and said, I got to see you turkeys later. God hasn't created me to be on the ground. He's created me to soar. The problem with so many people who call themselves Christians is they've been hanging out with the turkeys of this world and aren't soaring in their God-ordained purpose. You think that you are like other people, yet the reality is God has created you to be so much more. And what this story teaches us is, is when we don't know our identity, we won't soar into our purpose. When you don't really come to grips with who you are, and with what God has created you to be, you will never fly at the altitude God intended for you to fly. God has created you for so much more than bank accounts and homes and cars and possessions. There's a, another dimension he wants us to go to. There's a, another altitude he wants us to soar into. There's greater things that he has for us. And this is exactly Peter's point as we come to our text. In fact, if I could just condense the message of our text into kind of a, a pithy phrase, I would say it this way. What Peter wants us to know in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, is right identity repositions us for real purpose. 
Right identity repositions us for real purpose. Peter begins with some identity shaping statements. He says, let me just speak into you what God says about you. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. I'm not telling you what your mama said. I'm not telling you what your daddy said. I'm not telling you what your next door neighbor said. I'm not telling you what Pookie and him said. I'm telling you what God says. This is who you are. This is your identity, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people of God's own possession. This is your identity. Now, for 12 years, I pastored in Memphis. Memphis is one of the poorest cities on the planet. Um, and so, you know, the idea of Memphis in a lot of ways is the antithesis of the Bay. People are trying to get out of Memphis. Like Memphis is not a destination city. You don't come to Memphis to, 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 to hang out. And so if I were to preach this text in Memphis, I, I might say something to the effect of a lot of people don't know what your, a lot of you don't know what your identity is and you're broken and some things have happened to you and you have no sense of who your identity is. That's not the way you preach this text in the Bay. It's timeless truth, but you got to contextualize it in the Bay. The problem is not not that you don't necessarily know your identity. The problem that many of you have is what I call misplaced identity. And so I'm, I'm looking at a lot of people and many of you, not all of you, but many of you have just accomplished incredible things. You're incredibly smart people from, from, from the time you were a little person, man, you were always in the accelerated classes and you, you know, you were taking the, 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 the PSATs when you were seven years old and, you know, just doing all, you're just killing it. And what you need to hear is you are not your intellect. You are not your GPA. You are not, <laughs> you are not the letters behind your name. You are not what you drive. You are not where you work. You are not the amount of zeros in your bank account. See, the problem is, Misplaced identity will never fully fulfill, only frustrate. So when I put my, in it, my identity in any place outside of God and his son, Jesus Christ, I am now on a collision course, not for fulfillment, but for frustration. A recent New York Times article actually unveils that the fastest rate of, of suicide is among wealthy, affluent people. Why is that? Because they get to the mountaintop, they check off all the boxes, they, they, they get everything they wanted in life, and they get to that point they realize, it ain't all that I thought it would be. I mean, that's the whole message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's a guy, King Solomon, by today's estimation, billionaire several times over. He looks at all of his houses, all of his chariots. Each chariot had 26-inch rims on it, all this stuff that he had. And you know what he says? Vanity of vanities. Hebrew word, habel, empty. Some of you are like, well, at least let me try. Just let me get a billion and let me reach that conclusion on my own. <laughs> Our own Steve Jobs 
billionaire, affluent, enough fame to last a million lifetimes, when he's dying of cancer, looking at death in, his, in its eyes, he wondered aloud if, this is his words, I wonder if death is some kind of cosmic off switch, where boom, you're just gone, that's it. This is what he says, look at it with me. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your conscience endures. You hear what he's saying? Is this it? Is this it? I've done a lot of funerals. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. I, I, I've seen it all. One thing I've never seen at a cemetery is a U-Haul truck. You ain't taking it with you. In fact, husbands, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to die, and if your wife's still around, she'll, she'll, she'll shed a few tears till she gets a life insurance check. She's going to cash that bad boy. And I'm giving my wife specific instructions. That ain't for the next dude. All right, now you go on a cruise, you do what you want to, but I will come up out this bad boy. Can you say amen? I didn't hear you say amen on that, sweetheart. <laughs> so a question we all wrestle with. Hear me. I don't care. Some of you here today, you grew up in the church. From the time you're a little person, you went to Sunday school, the flannel boards. Remember the flannel boards? You were in Sunday school with the flannel boards class and all that stuff. Others of you, this is your first time in church. I don't care where you are on the spiritual continuum. The background elevator music of all of our lives is who am I? What's my identity? I just, want to, I just want, again, to read this over you. Here's what God says. It's not what the preacher says. Here's what God says about you. Verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. That's who you are. So you've got to receive that today. You got to lean into that. Now, I'm just gonna, I don't have time to unpack all these phrases. Let me just unpack the first two to you. He says, you are a chosen race. The idea of race there is family. That you got saved and God immersed you into a family. Ephesians chapter 1, you were adopted into the family of God. That's who you are. Now, how did you get there? Now, th these aren't my words. These are Peter's words. Peter says, here's how you got there. You got there because God chose you. Now, some of y'all ain't going to like this. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, today I'm going to get saved. It, it wasn't your good idea that got you into the kingdom. God picked you out of a crowd. God, by his sovereign grace, chose you. Now, we, we got to be careful some of the songs we sing. A real popular song about a decade ago was, I found Jesus. Now, I had a catchy tune, wonderful tune, but we didn't find Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. We were the ones who were lost. He found us. He chose 
us. So we didn't choose God. God chose us. Now, some of you sophisticated theologians, you, you, you need some Bible here. So let me give you some Bible. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Look at it with me on the screen. Here's what God says. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, chosen you, chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You. you are the fewest of all peoples, but it was, but it is because the Lord loves you. He chose you. He chose you. He chose you. And we need to understand this, especially in the Bay, because in the Bay, what we feel here is meritocracy. I earn it. I earn the position. I earn the promotion. I get the degree so I can position myself. I earn, I earn, I earn. God says, no, no, no. I chose you and let's keep it real. You weren't the best candidate. You got here by my sovereign grace. You need some more Bible. John 15, verse 16. It's Jesus talking. You might go Old Testament. Let's let's hear what Jesus says. Look at it with me. Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give it to you. So I just, I just want to tell you, you were chosen, you were chosen, you were chosen, you were chosen, you were chosen. Some of you are going, well, wait a minute, I thought I made the decision to walk down the aisle. What you were responding to was God's grace. And even allowing you to see your need. It's sort of like there are 50 blindfolded men running through the wilderness. Little do they know they're headed with a collision course to a fiery pit. And I come to 25 of them and remove the blindfold so that they could see where they were headed. Of course they're going to stop, but they don't stop unless I first sovereignly remove the blindfold. The way you got saved is God removed the blindfold, let you see your true condition, and you responded to his grace. So I want you to understand that. Now, this is, this is key for me in evangelism. Now this takes the pressure off. Because if God does, does the choosing, I can't talk anybody into the kingdom. I can't save you. God, again, as I said last week, he doesn't need us to be his lawyers. Just his witnesses. Just testify what you've seen God do and leave the results up to God. God chooses, God chooses, God chooses. Now, how did you end up getting saved? Peter deals this, deals with this. He says, middle of verse nine, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Underline this phrase, who called you, called you, called you, called you, called you. Peter's writing in Greek. It is the Greek word kaleo. Speaks of a person who is Calling out, and there's a group of people, but he doesn't call the whole group. He calls one person in the group. Diane. Regina. Steve. He called you out of darkness into light. Now, I grew up, I grew up on the south side of town, the south side of Atlanta, a little town called College Park, Georgia. And uh, on my street, you know, this is back in the day, man. We weren't politically correct. I had friends like Fat Harold. 
I know that's fat shaming. You shouldn't do that. Um, Big Steve. And I had a buddy of mine named Skeeter. I don't know why we called him Skeeter. His real name was Calvin. I don't, I don't know how he got that nickname. But, but one day I wanted to go play, play with my buddies. And dad told me to be back home at a certain time. Long story short, I wasn't back home at a certain time. I was out way past curfew. I was playing out in the darkness with Fat Harold, Big Steve, and Skeeter. And here I am playing in the darkness. And all of a sudden I hear a familiar voice. It's me padre. He ain't calling Fat Harold. He ain't calling Big Steve. He ain't calling Skeeter. To all of us kids playing, he called Brian. Brian! He called me out of playing in the darkness into the light of his own home. And it wasn't that fun that night, that light. But we got home. How did I get home? He called my name specifically. How did you get saved? God, by his grace. He didn't call your next door neighbor. Maybe didn't call your sibling. Maybe didn't call your parents. God called your name. Whatever that date was, you got saved. He called your name. And he called you out of playing in the darkness of this world to rest in the light of his beloved son. That's who you are. You are a chosen race. Now the next identity, identity statement he makes is because you're a chosen race, you've got value. That's why he now calls you a royal, 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 royal priesthood. Now in that day, kings, many kings in antiquity had their private priests. And this private group of priests were called the royal priesthood. And what made them so special was not who they are in and of themselves, but what made them special was who they were in relationship with and who they served the king. It was not about them, but who they were connected to. In in antiquity, you also had something called royal cities. These cities on their surface were just average cities with average bricks and mortar. But what made them royal is who lived there, the king. Likewise, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. You have value. You have value. You have value. But what makes you special is not you. What makes you special is who you are in relationship with the King of Kings. So if you've ever been to Atlanta's airport, uh, e-concourse. Um, if you go up the escalator in e-concourse, at the top of the escalator, what you'll see is a suit, a robe, and a Bible. Ordinary stuff. Suit, robe, Bible. E-concourse, Atlanta airport. Now, what strikes you is this suit, robe, Bible is enclosed in a glass case. So one of your first thoughts is, these are ordinary objects, but they are being treated as if they were extraordinary. What's so special about these ordinary objects? What's so special about this this suit, this robe, this Bible? So you walk over to the glass case. Here's what you'll actually see, that these ordinary things belong to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., He wore the suit. He preached in the robe. He preached out of the Bible. It wasn't about the Bible. It wasn't about the robe. It wasn't about the suit. It's who they belong to. Hear me. At the end of the day, you and I, as John Legend said, we just ordinary people. 
But what makes we ordinary people so extraordinary is who wears us. It's who's inside of us. It's who's tabernacling in us. First Corinthians six says your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What makes you royalty is not you, but it's the fact that King Jesus lives inside of you. That's what makes you special. Now, let me just stop right here, and I want to say this word as as, uh, sensitively as I can. If this is true, then there should be no such thing as a Christian who struggles with low self-esteem. I want this word to settle into your spirit. If you are allowing the voice of God to be louder in your life than the voice of the world, why do you have low self-esteem? Hear me. Some of us, yes, we do need to go to counseling. And yes, we do need to work through our issues. And yes, but at some point, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to look the devil in his eye and you're going to have to tell him what the word says about you. Not what your mama says about you. Not what your daddy says about you. Not what white folks say about you. Not what any other race say about you. You got to be able to look the devil in the eye and say, stop right there and go no further. This morning, I'm waking up. I'm a royal priest who I am. It's who I am. Now, here's the deal. If we were to stop it right here, if that's it, verse nine, uh, verse nine, a is the end of the chapter. Now we're positioned for arrogance. I'm royalty. Step back. It's who I am. Now we, now we're just going to be arrogant folk. If that's it, I'm special. I'm special. I'm special. If you don't tell, if you don't tell, if Peter doesn't tell us what you're special for, now he's positioning us to be a body of entitled spiritual four-year-olds who get trophies just for being on the soccer team. Okay? No, 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 no. He now moves from identity, who I am, so now, now he goes, now that I have realigned your identity, now you're repositioned to walk in purpose. So now that I truly understand who I am, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, now the punchline is, what do I do with that purpose? Here it is, middle of verse 9. He says, that you, that you, that you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's what he's saying. God has chosen you by his grace. He has called, he could have chosen anyone else, but he chose you. He called you out of darkness into light. Now what he's saying is now that I've shifted your identity, open up your mouth in the world and tell people about the one who's changed your life that you may proclaim. So we we understand this. Whenever there's been a shift in identity, that always follows with joyful proclamation, okay? Um, so let me show you how this works in marriage. Um, um, most people, when, when marriage happens, it should be a shift in identity. Unfortunately for 
A lot of people, it's not. I can't tell you how many, how many times over the years I've sat down with young men, newly married men typically, and they sit in my office and they bemoan, they bemoan the fact, hey, man, I just got married. My wife won't let me hang out with the homies as long as I want. She won't let me do this. She won't let me do that, blah, 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 blah. And what you understand is, oh, you want the privileges of marriage. You just still want to act like you're single. So what you got to do is, if you wanted to still act like you were single, you should stay single. But if you're going to lean into your new identity, there's just got to be a shift. Anyway, side note, most of us, when that shift happens, that begins at engagement. So I got down on one knee, I think it was uh, December 14th, 1998, got down on one knee at Marina Del Rey with Corey, presented her with the ring. She said yes. And, and, and now we started telling folk, right? My wife is right-handed, but now all of a sudden she starts shaking people's hand with her left hand. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, I would tell her, you know, you know I, I just need you to lift that hand a little bit more, babe. I know it's heavy. I know it's heavy right now, but they need to see the rock. They need to see it. Why? New identity. Now we're proclaiming to people. Something's changed, right? Or for those of us who have had kids, um, with the first kid, we, we, we proclaim, not with the third kid. And once the third kid happens, you know. I mean, my youngest son, Jaden. I mean, his two older brothers, they're, you know, they're, the, um, the, the, the photographs. My oldest got about a stack like that. Middle son, that. Jaden ain't got no pictures, Doc. He, Doc, we just, <laughs> no scrapbook. We still working on a scrapbook. But we ain't got no pictures, whatever. But with the first kid, with the first kid, you first find out you're pregnant, you're telling people. Why? There's been a shift in identity. I'm going to be a mama now. I'm going to be a father now. I'm stepping into a new identity. Likewise, here's what Peter's saying. You got saved. A change has happened in your life. He's taking you from darkness into light. As the Bay Area's own Tremaine Hawkins saying, a change, a change has come over me. He's changed my life and now I'm free. He says, if you indeed have a new identity, you ought to have a bad case of the I can't help it. You ought to just be opening up your mouth. So what this does is it lifts evangelism out of the category of duty into delight. And something happened to me. I, I mean, I know a whole lot of verses. All I know, at one time, I was blind, but now I see. I, I don't have all the apologetic stuff. I don't have all that sophisticated stuff. All I know, one day I was over here. The next day he's over here. Let me just tell you about the one who's changed my life. So if you're in exile who has legitimately been redeemed, you proclaim him. Now, if you say you're in exile, Brian, but you don't talk about him. Maybe, Brian, the reason why you don't talk about him is because ain't nothing changed. Now he ends 
Still talking about purpose, new identity, new identity, new identity. What's my purpose? Proclaim, open up your mouth, make a difference. Now he talks about, secondly, another way we make a difference. Look at verse 11 and 12 as we close. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, again, not your home, your immigrants, your citizenship is in heaven, to abstain. The idea of abstain, we talked about it last week, is really the idea of put away, get rid of, don't manage your sin, be done with it, don't flirt with it, don't play with it. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, now, some of you may not realize this, but whenever the New Testament, for the most part, talks about flesh, it's not talking in physical terminology. It's talking in spiritual dimensions. The flesh is that part of me that naturally wants to rebel against the will and way of God. And we were born with this because of what Adam and Eve, Romans chapter 5, did in the garden. The sinful nature of the flesh was passed down to me. That's why when your kids were just a couple of days old or a couple of weeks old, they didn't lay in their crib. Three o'clock in the morning, go, you know what? I'm hungry, but mom and dad, they got to get up and go to work in the morning. And um, you know what? I, 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 just, I just don't want to be a selfish person. So I'm just going to just kind of swallow it. And I'm just going to ca- kind of curtail my hunger pains. I'm going to let mom and dad get a good night's rest. That's not what babies do. I'm hungry. Get your behind up out of bed now. Feed me now. Kids don't have to take a selfishness one-on-one class. They don't have to get a degree in lying. They came in the world that way. Why? Because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. This thing is called, it's in us. It's in us. It's in us. It's in us. We naturally desire to have life on our own terms. It's who we are. It's who we are. It's what makes marriage such a challenge because now you put two sinners in the house with one another sleeping in the same bed with each other. God says, work it out. Work it out. Work it out. I know this is the Oscars. I ain't nowhere near done though. Just give me, give me a few more minutes. We can stop playing the piano. So listen, here's what I want you to understand. He says, I want you to abstain, abstain abstain, put it away, the flesh. Now, 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 here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Why is it, God, that when you saved me, you didn't get rid of my flesh? That's, that's easy, right? Why, God, when you saved me, you did not get rid of my flesh? Here's why. God's ultimate aim in life is his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were put on this earth to give God maximum glory. Here's the principle. The greater the conflict, the greater the glory. Why did God create the garden and put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in it? He didn't do it because he wanted to see Adam and Eve fall. He did it because he wanted maximum glory. If there was not the propensity for failure, there would not be choice. And if there is not choice, he does not get maximum glory. 
So the reason why I put it on the screen, the reason why we call Muhammad Ali the greatest of all time is because the incredible conflict that he had. That's why we call him the greatest. That's why, why we ascribe glory to him, because he took on these incredible enemies. Uh, Sonny Liston, the Supreme Court, Joe Frazier, George Foreman. Incredible opponents, and yet he reigned victorious. Why did God leave the flesh in my life? I was in the men's huddle the other day, and just, you know, we're just talking about it in the men's huddle. Why did he leave the flesh here? Because God wants to wring every ounce of glory he can get from your life. And he wants you to understand Galatians chapter 5, that the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another. Our passage, they wage war against one another. So when the flesh rises up, what we have to say is, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm going to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit to give me victory over this foe. And when I do that, God gets glory. She says, I want you to... I want you to abstain. I want you to abstain. Finally, he ends on this note. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visitation. So here's what I want you to understand about Christianity. Here's what Peter is telling them. He says, look, Listen, I want you to understand something here. When it comes to this life, we're not the home team. We're the visiting team. I want you to get this in your spirit. When it comes to this life, this earth, we ain't the home team. We're the visiting team. In just a few moments, Dallas Cowboys are going to walk through Levi's Stadium. And folk are going to be calling them every name but a child of God. They're going to be booing them, jeering them, opposition, opposition, opposition. And guess what? Nobody on the Dallas Cowboys are going to pitch a fit. I can't believe these people are booing me. I can't believe these people are cursing at me. I can't believe this stuff is happening. Oh, no, no, no. no they're not going to complain about that. Why? Because they fundamentally understand this is not a place for whining. We are the visiting team. Can I say something to us as a church? When we really get this mentality, we stop whining about what's happening in the world. Now, we've got more power and more victory, but some Christians act like this world is their home. We are the visiting team. Expect sinners to act like sinners. The problem is, is when you've got a bunch of saints acting like turkeys. We're the visiting team. So what does that mean? Expect opposition from the world. Expect them to take prayer out of schools. Expect them to say things about you. Expect them to mistreat you. That doesn't mean you're a doormat, but don't let it throw you. You're dealing with non-Christians. So this is Peter's day. This is what was happening. Let me just give you an, an idea here. The Romans, they so hated Christians. They used to take Christians sow them with wild animals in bags, toss them down the Thames River 
They used to take Christians for sport into their version of Levi's Stadium and unleash wild animals on them. Nero used to take Christians, set their bodies on fire, attach them to poles, and use them to light the great Roman roads so that when you're walking down the streets of Rome, you're looking up at the bodies of Christians who are being burned. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're living in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to Christians. I think what God's doing, friends, is he's purifying his church. He's purifying us. So what are we to do? Let's go home on this one. Here's what he says to do. He says to them in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, underline this word, honorable, honorable, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, punchline, and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word honorable simply means to be morally distinguished. It means to be different. It means to fly at a higher altitude. It means when you walk into work, there's just this aroma you give off, not that you act like you're better than people, not that you're some self-righteous, arrogant person, but the way you carry yourself. People go, I can't quite put my finger on it, but you are different. Why? Because you are flying at a higher altitude. Of course, the example of this is Daniel chapter 6. I mean, these guys are looking to get Daniel and they can find nothing on him but his relationship with God. And this is what happens. He's living a, a, an honorable life. In other words, the idea of honorable is not messy, not down in the mud, not returning evil for evil. Honorable, morally distinguished, honorable, honorable honorable. When I think of this, I think of Dr. Robert Smith Jr., the great preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School. Dr. Robert Smith Jr., long story short, his beloved son was murdered. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. felt led of the Holy Spirit to begin writing letters to his son's killer, now behind bars. He writes letters. He comes to visit him. He shares Christ with his son's killer, leads him to faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not it. Holy Spirit says, disciple him. Robert Smith Jr. is now discipling his son's killer. His son's killer says, I believe God's calling me to be a pastor and a preacher. Can you help me? Dr. Robert Smith Jr. said in front of a group of we preachers, he says, the Lord's called me to set up a scholarship fund at Beeson Divinity School that's going to be funded in order to help young men embrace their calling as pastors and preachers. And this scholarship will be named after my deceased son and the first recipient of it will be his killer. That's called flying at a higher altitude. It's not returning evil for evil. It's not getting down in the mud with people. It's not, you slap me on my right cheek, I'll slap you on your left. It is saying, how can the Spirit of God living inside of me cause me to live a morally distinguished life? And one of the primary ways we Christians know we are different is how we treat people who mistreat us. Of course, the penultimate example of this is Jesus Christ. 
No one lived a more honorable life than Jesus Christ. You talk about walking in a hostile environment. They, they spit on him. They mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They run a spear through his side. Yet on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. This is what it means to live honorable. With a visiting team. Hostile. I fly at a higher altitude. Because the spirit is living inside of me. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want us to look to him now. The first Sunday of every month is the Sunday that we choose to observe the sacrament of communion. Today I want us to look at communion with fresh eyes. We're going to partake of the body and blood of our honorable Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who did not get down in the mud and return evil for evil. But he flew at a higher altitude. It's because of what this honorable Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did. By paying it all for us on the cross that you and I can have eternal life. I want every head bowed and every eye closed today. Communion is for two kinds of people. One, it is for people who are in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. You can only be called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, if you first said yes to Jesus. I want you to hear me, that I believe my voice right now, God is using to call someone to faith in him. Kaleo. He wants to call someone right now out of darkness into the marvelous light. If you're here today and you're going, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ and I want to say yes to his call. I want to say yes to his call. Would you just slip your hand in the air? I want to say yes to the call of God. Yes to the call of God. Yes to the call. Yes, I see your hand. Yes, I see your hand. If you're here today and maybe you are a follower of Jesus Christ, communion is not just for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. It is also for those who are walking in victory over sin whose identity is resting in Jesus. If you're here today and you're going, I would call myself a follower of Jesus Christ. But I just got to tell you, I think I'm dealing with misplaced identity. I think I'm resting my sense of who I am in things outside of God. Could be things like um, my GPA, could be things like the letters behind my name, could be those kinds of things. Things like my family, things like my kids, my spouse, things like my money. Pastor, I just want you to pray for me. I think I'm wrestling with issues of misplaced identity. And I'm not really walking in God's ordained purpose for my life. Would you just slip your hand in the air? Yes, 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 yes. I want to pray for us right now. The good news is, is that you can partake of communion today if you say yes to Jesus 
And if you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9 says he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're here today and you're going, you know what, I want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. I want to invite you to pray this prayer after me. You can either do it out loud or in the confines of your own heart. Dear God, thank you for sending your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins. I confess to you that I am a sinner in need of your grace. I invite you now to come into my heart and life through the person of your Holy Spirit. Clean me up. Make me new. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.